verse 10 through 20. What a blessing it is to have God's revealed truth and his word in our hands this morning. To know that the God who created this universe did not leave us to fend for ourselves and to, to make up things as we go along. But that we can know his will, we can know his purpose by opening up his book. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray, even now that you would just have your way in our hearts, that you would speak clearly to us through your word. I pray, Father God, that you would give me boldly, boldness at this time to, to speak boldly without fear. I pray that you would captivate my mind, take it over, and allow me to say the words that you want to be said so that your spirit can take them and allow these seeds to be planted deeply in our hearts. Lord, we thank you that we have victory over Satan. We thank you, Father God, for that blood, Lord, that allows us to be victorious. We thank you for your ministering angels that's going before us even now. We thank you that Satan's contract has been canceled. And we ask you to speak, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. In the name of Jesus. I want to continue our mini-series called The Invisible War, The Invisible War, and today we'll be looking at, at part two of this series. Paul David Tripp has a great comment on spiritual warfare, and this is what he has to say. Spiritual warfare makes us think of demon possession, horrific demonstrations of satanic control, and dramatic exorcism. But scripture presents spiritual warfare not as the violent, bizarre end of the Christian life, but as what the Christian life is. As what the Christian life is. And yet, according to a 2011 survey done and research done by the Barna Group, only 53% of American Protestants that were interviewed said that they believe in a literal Satan. 
of those who profess faith in Jesus believe in a literal Savior? How can we win a war if we don't believe that we have an enemy? How can we be on guard and be alert if we think that Satan is just a myth? No, the Bible teaches us very clearly that we as Christians are at war. And that Satan is real. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not someone that the biblical writers just made up. But he's real. Jesus talked about Satan in the four Gospels 25 times. First Peter, Peter talks about Satan in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and he uh, describes Satan as a lion. He says he is our adversary. He said he is seeking whom he can devour, seeking whom he can take out. And if anybody knows that that's true, it's Peter, because one day Jesus came up to Peter and said, Peter, Satan has asked for you. He has asked to sift you as wheat, but know that I have prayed for you. And we know that in the next scene, Satan, uh, Peter was tempted by Satan and fell to that temptation. But it is the prayers of Jesus that allowed him not to end up like Judas. Satan's real. John, the revelator, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Revelation, chapter 12, Revelation, chapter 20, pictures Satan and puts Satan on display as a real enemy. And the reason why some of us are stale in our Christian walk and why some of us aren't growing in our Christian walk is because Satan has got you to believe that he's not real. And if you do believe that he's not real, he's gotten you to believe that you're not in an active war against him. When we believe that we are at war against a real enemy, we approach every day differently because we know that someone's out to get us. We know that someone is out to devour us because not only is Satan real, but the Bible says that he is vicious, that he is after us. John 10 and 10 says that the thief, Satan, comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy Just like God has a a plan for your life, Satan has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life so that you can experience the love of Christ and live on mission for him. And even in the midst of suffering and hardships, that you can depend on him and experience joy and have eternal life. But Satan has a plan for your life. Satan has a plan for your child. The one you put in bed every night. He and his imps are constantly looking at that child, praying to see how they are going to keep that child in their kingdom and away from being in God's kingdom. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your career. He has a plan for you to see your job as merely a job and not an engagement of spiritual warfare. He has a plan for your career. He has a plan for your singleness. He is planning out your singleness in order to get your singleness to be about you and not about Christ, to derail you from deep passion in Jesus. He has a plan for your marriage. 
Those little skirmishes, those little fights that that ends up having you not speaking to each other for months or weeks or hours or days is him, that slithering serpent, that snake roaming around in the grass, seeking when he can bite so that you can die for his venom. This plan isn't, as Paul Tripp says, just this intense demonic showing. It's this numbness. This bite of passivity and inactivity and apathy and routine and tradition. And he wants to take you down. Satan is real. Satan is vicious. Satan is strategic. He knows your hot buttons. He knows your doubts. He knows your fears. He knows your past. And he's just waiting. In fact, I want you to look up at the screen and we can see some of the activity of Satan and how he is working throughout the Bible. And this is mostly from, I added a few, but but most of this is from a great book on spiritual warfare by a man by the name of Chip Ingram, who um, I've just delighted in this book. It's been one of the best books that I read in 2014, and it's called The Invisible War. If you want to go deeper into spiritual warfare and just uh, really see, uh, even at a a greater scale, what Satan is up to, this is a great book to to read and to go into. But he lays out in this book the activity of Satan and, and how he works throughout the scriptures. For we see in our Bibles in verse 12, it lets us know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible tells us that we are in a wrestle. We are in a a hand-to-hand combat type of fight every day while we sleep and when we arise. And as we look through the scriptures, we see that Satan is doing a number of different things. Job chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says that the the Lord, uh, that Satan came to the Lord, and the Lord asked Satan, he says, what are you doing? And Satan said, I am just going to and from, roaming the earth, seeking who I can mess up, seeking who I can overthrow, seeking who I can derail. These are some of his activities some of the things that Satan does. One, he directs governments. You may want to write some of these down and do a Bible study of your own. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, says that he directs governments. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that he deceives people. He appears as an angel of light, dressed up as an angel of light. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says that he is in the business of destroying lives. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 says that he persecutes saints. Persecutes saints. Just in the news this past week, there was a a police fire chief in Atlanta who served faithfully for 30 years. And who even served for President Obama as a, as a kind of a national leader in fire. Who's a devoted Christian. In fact, he contributed to Sunday school curriculums as well as wrote books. And he recently lost his job because of a, a woman who also was in the, the fire department. Who was a lesbian. And who 
became aware of his deep commitment to Jesus in his writings and who basically exposed the fact that he called a certain thing sin. And as a result of 30 years on the service, he was fired. 30 years. Even though she said he's never discriminated against me, even though they researched and found that no one has ever complained about him, just because they dug up some old writings of his, he lost his job. His job is to persecute saints. His job is to prevent service, to make those who are saints, pew saints, Sunday morning saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. His job is to promote schisms in the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. His job is to plant doubt in the mind of those who are supposed to be on mission for God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. His job is to produce sex and cults, spinoffs from the true church. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. If you want a complete listing of this and we went too fast, just email the church this week and we'll, we'll make sure we get it to you. But he also promotes sin. He's also behind and and working in conjunction with the world and with our flesh to inflame our our sinful characteristics like anger. Do you know that when we're angry and we are filled with the ungodly anger that Satan is working with us to inflame that anger so that we can lash out? An ungodly anger demonstrated is demonic according to James. Like pride, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 6. Satan works in conjunction with our flesh to, to cause us to worry. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. Satan's chief way to distract the saints is to get us to become self-reliant. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. It's to discourage us, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. It's to get us to, to lust after the things of the world, 1 John chapter 2 through 16. It's to help us to become liars, Acts chapter 5, verse 3. It's to inflame us towards ungodly passions and immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. So Paul is writing from Rome to the church at Ephesus, and he just wrote this theologically robust, beautiful picture of the Christian life and who we are together in Christ and the power that we have through him. He has demonstrated this throughout the book of Corinth as he writes by praying and writing prayers to let the church of Corinth know that it's not just about talk, it's also about engaging God through prayer. And now he tells us at the end of the book that the only way that we're going to live victorious in Christ is if we are dressed for battle. He tells us in verse chapter 10 to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Fighting this invisible war cannot be done in the flesh. It cannot be done in human effort. It only can be done through God, through Jesus, we have to be strong in him, not in ourselves, not in resolutions, not in good intentions. We have to be 
desperately seeking his face. But I want you to also know that being strong in the Lord has a purpose, and that purpose is to get us to stand when Satan comes to discourage us. Satan wants us to flee out of fear or to yield to his schemes and to his tricks. But God says, no, you have to be strong in me. You have to be strong in me so that you will stand. So that you will stand. Says those who I've called to the battlefield, you can't run. You've got to stand and fight. It's the picture of an old school battle, old school fighters. Two armies have, have lined up. And, and one army is, is standing there without gear, and the other army has full armor on. Paul is saying, no, you've got to put on the whole armor of Christ so that you can stand, and as you all are going close to each other, that you can have confidence. Confidence. In fact, look at, look at the text. He says this three times, once in verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is strategic. He has schemes. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Just make sure that you have on the armor of God so that when you're tempted, that you'll be able to stand. Says the same thing at the end, and having done all to stand firm. Even that you've come to your wit's end and you don't know what, how to work, how to get out of this situation. It's just overwhelming to you rather than run or give up. He says, nope, you just stand. You just stand. You just stand. It says it again, verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Stand. Don't run. Don't give up. Don't give in. Stand. And one of the reasons why we get trapped in sin, and one of the reasons why we get overcome with despair, is because we're not dressed for battle. We've got on vacation clothes. We got on, spiritually, we got on our finest garments. We don't want to get messy. We don't want to get wrinkled. We want to live our best life now. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. And Satan is kicking our butt. Satan is having his way in our lives. He's having his way in our friendships. He's having our way, his way in our marriages. He's having his way at work. He's having his way in our mind. Maybe one of the reasons you feel like you're losing your mind is because you aren't actively pursuing Jesus and recognizing that you're at war. Like, like who gets in a fight and calls out somebody to fight without being prepared? Right? Remember in school, you, you, someone's about to fight? No, you, you fight, you keep your eye on your enemy the whole time. You don't call somebody out to fight in the, in the, in the locker room or in the hallway and then take your eyes off your enemy, no. When, when someone calls you out to fight and they say, it's time, we're about to throw down, and they start talking off their earrings and putting on Vaseline, you got two options. Either you stand there and you fight, or you get out of there. But you don't take your eye off the enemy. Satan has called us out to fight. And many of us have taken our eye off the enemy. Oh, my life is so good, it's so blessed, and everything is going right, and everything is easy. It's probably because you're not engaging in warfare. I have no enemies. You're not engaging in warfare. Jesus said, if they hate you, they will hate me. And that brings us to our uh, update from our last sermon to where we are today. 
Look at your text. We, we've got to know how to put on the whole armor of God. Look at what it says. Put on the whole armor of God, verse 11. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. What is, what is the whole armor of God? What is he saying? In essence, Paul is saying, actively put on Jesus every day. Actively pursue Jesus or you will get beat up. And it's God's armor, it's not our own armor. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says that the weapons are, of our warfare is not carnal, but it's mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. The only way we defeat Satan is if we're putting on Jesus and not fighting in our own strength. Turn to Romans chapter 13 real quick. And we're going to go into this armor and talk a little bit about what Paul is doing here and what that means for us. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To put on the whole arm of God is to intentionally put or be submerged in Christ. It's to walk in your position with him. Every day to recognize that you are at war and you desperately need Jesus. And it's to pursue him. It's to know your own weaknesses. Know your own sin patterns. Know your own desires and say, Jesus, empower me to be victorious in these areas. Because Satan is looking for a crack and a crevice to get into your personal life so that he can destroy you with that sin. And he tells us, oh, it's okay. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't care as long as no one knows about it, as long as it's not hurting anyone else. And what Satan is doing is he is slowly putting us to sleep. He's got us in a chokehold. And he's slowly choking us out. He's spiritually killing our vitality, spiritually killing our concentration. And then he puts us to sleep and ultimately to death. Isn't that what Paul said? For the wages of sin is what? So let's talk about putting on this armor. First thing Paul says that we must put on is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Understand that Paul is in Rome and Paul is very familiar with soldiers and and visual aids. And as he's talking to Ephesus, he uses this visual aid in order to, to, to stress this point that we need to make sure that Jesus has got us and that we're covered with him. That the only way these things are going to happen that he talked about before in Ephesus, the only way we're going to have strong marriages, the only way we're going to raise godly children is if we are constantly pursuing Jesus. So he starts off and he uses this analogy of Roman armory, and the first thing he says is put on the belt of truth. Now what is the belt of truth? For a Roman soldier, the belt of truth was extremely important. In fact, some translations say, gird up your loins. Put on this belt. It was important because just about every other part of a soldier's armor was connected to the belt. It was connected to the belt. And without this belt, the soldier could, number one, get in a lot of trouble with his commanding officer if he was seen without it on. But number two, when he's on a battlefield, he would end up being clumsy because all the other parts of his armor would be getting in the way as he fought. 
What is Paul saying? Paul said the the foundation of spiritual warfare starts with truth. The foundation of growing in Christ starts with truth. Satan's number one tactic to destroy us and to defeat us is through deception. It's through lies. Genesis chapter 3, the way that he defeats Adam and Eve in the garden is by lying to them. It's by getting them to doubt and to question the goodness of God. Did God really say? Well, the reason why God really said this is because he knows that if you eat of this tree, that you will be just like him, deception. And spiritual death always starts with us being deceived. It always starts with our desires leading us on towards a false way. James chapter 5 talks about that, how the wanderer, the one who is no longer walking with Jesus, has wandered away from the truth. As we believe that deception, as we give in to our desires, it ultimately ends in death. James chapter 1. Satan tells his lies like, you know, being a Christian really doesn't take all that. Doesn't take all that prayer, doesn't take all that Bible reading. The pastor's a fanatic. Look, look, turn on TV, listen to this guy. He's not saying that's what it takes. It, it's, Satan has a way of lying. He tells us that truth is relative. Truth is relative. Meaning that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. We really can't rightly interpret the Bible. You just read it and you take the things that's for you and other parts it's not for you. It's relative. You believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe. Gets us comfortable, and he lies to us. Paul says, no, we we have to know the truth. Jesus said, Lord, in John chapter 17, he says, Lord, sanctify them in truth. 17, 17, your word is truth. God's word is truth. Psalm chapter 19. Verse 7 through 16. And we can't get away from God's word, but what Satan is constantly trying to do is draw us away from his word to the thinking of the world so that he can pounce on us. Tells us that a little sin is okay. Just a little bit. Remember that song, 50 Cent? Just a little bit, whatever. Then he gets us to to begin to hide things. Then we become insincere. Come to church week in and week out. Even though we're getting our behinds whooped in our daily life, we begin to put on these masks as if everything is okay. And we're living this victorious life. We become like Achan. We steal and we hide and we bury. And we think because it's not affecting anyone else, it's okay. No, when he says put on the belt of truth, he's saying put on the belt of sincerity and honesty. There's three people we need to be honest with. Number one is we need to be honest with God. We need to be honest with God and we need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I am weak. I am unable I actually love this sin. I can't even imagine living without it. But God, I need you. 
And we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves and we need to come to a place where we say, I need help. And I'm not okay. Then we need to be honest with others. You need to be honest, man, with your wife. You need to come out to her and say, honey, I'm, I'm really struggling with this private sin. And it's been going for a long time, and that's why I don't engage you in certain ways. We need to be honest with our friends and say, hey, I'm in a relationship that I shouldn't be in, but I've been hiding it from you. We need to be honest. Listen, if we're not honest with where we are, if we're not standing on God's word and being honest and saying we are constantly and habitually missing his mark, then we don't even have a chance at spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare starts with honesty. Satan is coming to deceive, to kill, to steal, and destroy. We have to put on our belt of truth. Second, we have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. While the belt of truth protects us against Satan's deception, the breastplate of righteousness protects us against Satan's condemnation. Because what Satan does is he deceives us and he gets us to create our own little world and live according to our own standards rather than God and and live according to our comfort level and and according to where we want to be rather than what God wants us to be. And then after he deceives us, he, he then pounces on us with condemnation. And he condemns us. That's why he said put on a breastplate of righteousness. Now, for the Roman armory, this breastplate started here and ended around the knees. Ended around the knees. It was often called the heart protector. Because it protected the the vital organs. So when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, he's saying that we need to make sure that we're walking in the way of righteousness. Now listen, we know that there's two types of righteousness in the New Testament. There is the righteousness that we receive from Jesus at salvation by justification. As Christians, by God's grace, if we've given our faith to God, to Jesus, if we've come to him by faith through grace, then we are declared righteous the moment we give our life to Jesus. Meaning that Jesus, on the cross, takes our messed up record. He takes all of our sins upon himself. And then he gives us his perfect righteousness. There's a divine exchange. And when God sees us now, from day to day, he sees us clothed in Jesus' righteousness. So positionally, we are righteous. And that's what we call the good news of Jesus as as, as Christians. That's that's why we're so excited about what's called the gospel, because the gospel says that in Christ, I am celebrated by God. That God is not in heaven looking on me with divine wrath, but rather he is looking on me with mercy. And even when I go astray, he is open and ready to receive me with open hands as a loving father. And his love never wanes for me. On my worst day and my best day, he loves me just intensely. But on my worst day, and as I habitually seek out the things other than him, his Holy Spirit becomes quiet and doesn't lead and direct us as he would. But he nonetheless loves us. That's positionally. 
But there's also called practical righteousness, sanctification. And that is us pursuing the standard that Jesus has placed before us. That is us seeking to love God with our whole being and love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and Paul is saying, he says, be, uh, have on the forearm of God, pursue Jesus, pursue him by pursuing truth, by knowing God's word and by, by not allowing Satan to deceive us and lie to us about who God is. But he's also saying, protect your heart by living righteously. Because it is when we are knowingly disobeying God, knowingly walking according to our ways and not his, that we open ourselves up for satanic attack. And all of a sudden, we're not so sure. We're not so sure about our salvation. All of a sudden, we don't have joy because we feel constantly condemned. Because we're not walking with honesty, sincerity. And we're not fighting to live righteous. Next, Paul says, not only do we need to protect ourselves against Satan's deception, not only do we need to protect ourselves against unrighteous living, ungodliness, but he goes on to say, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So if you're following along with me in your bulletin, that'll be the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He says that every, every soldier needs to put on the proper shoes. And one thing about the Roman armory is that one of the ways that they really led was in being innovative. And they had some great shoes. Their shoes were better than, than most others. Historians say that they had kind of some cleats that allowed them on the battlefield to be more secure in their standing. So as they're fighting against the enemy, they normally had better balance because they had better shoes on. They had the, they had the, the, the edge. When I was younger, there was a guy who was a part of my church who... Uh, was an accomplished kick fighter and uh, knew judo. He knew all kinds of types of uh, martial arts. And for a short time in my life, he would come over on Saturday mornings and, and he would teach me different fighting techniques. And the main thing he taught me in fighting was about balance and how to put people in different chokeholds. <laughs> and every now and then, I'm fighting with little guys around here I'll put them in a chokehold. They'll be like, Pastor, for real, stop. Stop. Pastor, stop. <laughs> I say, boy, I'm just playing with you. But you better remember that. But he used to teach me, he said, fighting, more than it is about strength, it's about balance. You can have someone that's bigger and stronger than you, but if you get them to lose their balance, you, you're, you're now in control. So fighting is about balance, it's about angles, it's about allowing them to exert their energy and knowing how to move to get the edge up on them. Paul is saying that we have these shoes and this, this gospel, this good news, and he says it's the, the gospel of peace. That's our foundation as Christians. That in Christ and through Christ, we have peace. We have a steadiness. We have a promise that everything is going to be all right. 
We have a promise that we are going to win in the end. We have security in our footing that no matter what Satan throws at us, that we can be able to move appropriately to counteract the enemy. So not only is it steadiness, but Paul says in this text, he says it's readiness. Because not only are we steady to be able to move, but now we're ready to be able to give. And what are we giving? We're giving a gospel of peace. So when I'm on my job, And Satan is trying to tear me down through someone else's words and trying to get me to get into deception. I can stand there and say, no, I don't have to fight back with fleshly, carnal ways. No, I'm going to put on my belt of truth because the Bible says that a soft answer turns away wrath. And now as I'm engaging this person, I'm not feeling guilty and condemned. I'm I'm free. And as they're fighting me back, I'm able to move and and to take some jabs and to move around because I'm steady. But now I'm able to give the gospel to them, a gospel of peace, and minister to them. They say, man, why? Every time I come at you and I try to cut you, you you come a different way. There's a peace about you. And we're sharing the gospel with them. You know, when you evaluated me, even though I thought you were very harsh, I will admit that I can do a better time with being on time. And I accept what you said. I'm going to work real hard to make sure that I do what you've put on this paper. Why why do you respond like this? Because I've got peace. I'm secure. In fact, let me tell you about how I got that peace. Let's go out to eat sometime. continue. He says our feet are steady. He, Satan comes with deception. Satan, Satan comes with condemnation. Satan tries to come with confusion. Those shoes are for. Rather than having confusion, we have peace. Then he goes on in verse 16. And all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. So he gives us another picture. He says, your dress, you, your heart is protected, your, your belt is on, your shoes are on. But this is probably my favorite part. He says, it's a, it's a shield of faith. As a Roman soldier, they had some very innovative shields. Very innovative shields. It was, it was made with a very, uh, in a very specific way. The shield was normally about four feet long. And one of the things that the shield did is it protected them against not only sword uh, combat, but it also protected them against air combat. Now, they didn't have airplanes, but they had arrows. Back then, in the old school warfare, they would take arrows and they would set them on fire. And before you even got to your enemy, you would pew, 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 pew. And there'd be fiery darts coming. So what happened with Rome, because they had money and because they were able to have this advantage, is they created shields that would put out the fires of the arrow. It was created in such a way that when an arrow penetrated their shield, it would not only catch the arrow, but it would extinguish the fire. So when enemies would show up and they would be shooting these fiery little darts, they all would come together and their shields would connect. 
and everybody will put up their shield. And they'll take those fires and they'll get up and march on. They'll put up that shield and they'll take those arrows and they'll get up and march on. They'll take those shields and it is said by one historian that one fighter was said to have 200 arrows caught in his shield. And he became a legend around Rome. Showed back up with 200 arrows in his shield. What is faith? Faith is an attitude that says, for all I trust him. Faith is dependence on Jesus. And Paul is saying the way that we fight against the enemy is by knowing that we have a shield that defeats him. As he's trying to lie to you and tell you that you're nothing and you'll never be nothing. As he tries to lie to you and tell you that you're damaged good and that that God no longer loves you because of what you did in yesteryear. As he tries to tempt you and tell you that your marriage is over and it's done and it's done and it's, and it's, and there's no way to bounce back. As he tries to tempt you and tell you that you might as well just spend your finances any old kind of way because that student loan debt is always going to be before you and biblical stewardship really doesn't matter. We can take that shield of faith and we can put it up and say, Satan, you are a liar. You are a liar and I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to live by the principles that he put in his word. I'm going to give even sometimes when it hurts. I'm going to love even when they mistreat me. And you put up that shield of faith. And you keep moving forward. Shield of faith protects us. Look at the text. It says from these fiery darts. Isn't that how Satan gets us? By these small little things. These small little darts that just pick us off and pick us away and that gets us to be despondent and depressed. Spoke at a conference yesterday here on ministry and depression and was speaking to young adults who are in inner city ministry. And as we started on the topic, it was kind of quiet and cold as we had about 25 people there and I just opened it up and said, how many of you all are dealing with depression or know someone as close to you that's dealing with depression? Most of them raised their hands. And even a few of them said that they've never been able to talk about this discussion and admitted to being deeply depressed. And one of the ways that Satan keeps us deeply depressed and keeps us down is by lying to us and telling us that we can fight it on our own, that we're strong enough, that no one else knows what we're going through. And then he begins to pick us apart and and look at our, our weaknesses and our character's deficiencies in order to utterly obliterate us. But God is saying, no, you put on that belt of truth, you put on that breastplate of righteousness, you raise that shield of faith, and look, you get in community with others, and they can help you raise it. So every now and then, when that shield of faith gets heavy, somebody else can block it for you. But some of us, the reason we're struggling with so much spiritual warfare is because we are trying to fight by ourselves. We think that we can go through life in this spiritual life and grow in Christ without the help of others. And God is saying, listen, don't be stuck on stupid. Pick up your Bible and read it. The Christian life is meant to be lived in community, not in isolation. And oh, how long Satan had me by thinking that I can defeat certain sins on my own. And it wasn't until I got some godly men around me It wasn't until I invited people into my heart, into my life, and say, this is what I struggle with, that they were able to teach me how to put up my shield of faith and how to fight the enemy. 
And that's why community groups are so important here at Forest Baptist Church. Imagine every week as you're in war. You are in war. We're not on a, a cruise ship. We're on a warship, as we said before. You are in war. What soldier does well on foreign territory by being alone? No, you, you're, you're looking to get captivated. You're looking to become <laughs> a cult. You're giving yourself to ISIS. You're walking around with the soldier gear. You're quoting scriptures. You're, I'm blessed and highly favored. But you're behind enemy lines. And that's exactly what the scripture says. We are behind enemy lines. Satan is the prince of this world. I'm blessed and highly favored. I don't really sin. I don't, I don't really sin. I don't really have problems, you know? Life is just easy. Yes, you do. Sin is lying. That's what it is. But if anyone says he, he has not sinned, he is a liar. First John chapter 7 through 9. And we can be vulnerable and say that we're weak. We can be vulnerable and say that we're living and we're struggling with the sin because we are hidden in Christ. And because we know the truth about the person that we're confessing to, that they're a sinner as well, and that we are all under work. Shield of faith. Faith, the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Faith is having a substance, a belief that you know is real, even though you cannot see it. It's having hope, a great expectation of the future. Hope is faith standing on his tippy toes saying, I may not see it, but I know he's coming. I know help is on the way. I know the future is better than the past. Goes on. Now, I want you to notice in verse 16, he says, in all circumstances. So some of us, we have faith in circumstances we want to have faith in. But he said, in every circumstance. Got to constantly keep our shield of faith. It was said on the battlefield, even if the enemy wasn't around, the soldiers was to have their shield on their arm. bring this to a close. Verse 17, we're going to go quickly through these last few verses. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Helmet of salvation. So we got, the, we got truth on when Satan tries to deceive us. We've got our breastplate of righteousness on, meaning that we are pursuing holiness so that Satan won't hit us with constant condemnation. We're not actively living in sin. We've got our shield of faith up so that when Satan tries to distract us with darts, we have it. And now he says, you've got to put on a helmet of salvation. Now, what is the helmet of salvation? Well, a lot of times when we think about salvation, we think about it as a past event. Think about it in terms of justification. And that's partly right. Salvation was claimed on the cross. And when we put our faith and trust and on that cross, and we look to Jesus, we can be secure because of what he did. But he's saying we've got to put on and keep putting on the helmet of salvation. 
which is present tense. And that's what we call sanctification. Every day, we've got to put on our helmet of salvation by, yes, looking back, but by also knowing that we are in the process of being saved. We're in the process of being saved. And one day we are going to be saved, and that's called glorification. The helmet of salvation is constantly reflecting on the fact that God has saved us, that he is saving us, and that one day we shall be saved. And it's important to know that when we're in battle against Satan because he doesn't fight fair. He doesn't fight fair. He's constantly looking to give us a blow to the head. And Paul is saying, no, you've got to have your helmet of salvation on and you've got to have it fastened. You've got to know what it means to be saved and to be secure in your salvation. Some of us, the reason we're not victorious in our walk of salvation is because we're we're constantly living in fear, believing that God is mean and that he's against us, that he doesn't love us. And it changes the way we engage God. Because now we're engaging him according to the law and not according to grace. And we're not secure. We're not living with peace. We're not living with joy. Satan is knocking us upside the head. Be secure in salvation. That's why it's so important that we, we learn about all the blessings that we have in salvation. That's why it's important that we know Ephesians chapter 1, that we've been saved. Ephesians chapter 2, by grace, that God chose us from the foundation of the world. That our salvation was not predicated on our works, but it was predicated on God's power and his grace. That the fact that he is keeping us and he has us in his hand, and no one can pluck it out of it, us out of his hand. The fact that he forgives us when we fall short, and we all fall short. We've got to be secure in that. Finally, he says, in having the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Let's look at this. Verse 17, it's take. That's active. That means you have to do it. We have to pursue that. We have to put effort into thinking about the things of God. He'll meet us there. Remember, as we are looking to him by faith, that he gives us the power to do so. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, all of these other things are defensive. All these other things really help us to protect ourselves. But he gave us one weapon, and it's the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God. That is our only offensive weapon. That's our only offensive weapon. And a a Roman soldier's sword was not very long. It wasn't very big. It was about two feet. It wasn't this big, gigantic, long thing. No, it it, it was very uh, uh, light and easy to use. It was crafted in a very specific way. The engineers made sure that it was deadly, but that it was quick and easy to use. And that's how the word of God is. It's our weapon against the enemy. In fact, this word is not, here in Ephesians chapter 6, is not the word logos that we often think of. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's actually a word that's called rhema. Rhema. And the difference between logos and rhema, logos is really the written word of God. 
Rhema is the written word of God applied in a given situation. It's applied in the present tense. Rhema is what we see happening in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And he is in hand-to-hand combat with Satan. Satan sees Jesus out in the wilderness, and he's trying to see. He's like, "Let, let let me mess with him just like I mess with the children of Israel so that I can defeat him in the wilderness like I defeated them. But Jesus has something that the children of Israel had, but they didn't use, and that's God's word. That's God's promise. And in the moment, Jesus was able to take out his sword of the spirit and fight the enemy. He was able to apply the word of God to a situation through the Holy Spirit so that Satan would have to flee. Satan is like a roaring lion until God's word comes out. And then he becomes like a little cat. And you keep wielding that sword. Keep you in the sword. Listen, you can have all these other truths, but if you don't know how to use God's word, if when temptation comes, you're quoting yourself, or Frederick the Entertainer, or whoever, the devil made me do it, whatever, rather than God, you're going to lose. Psalm 119 is such an important chapter as we see the psalmist in love with God's word, taking God's word in. How can a young man keep his ways pure before the Lord? By hiding God's word into his heart. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We cannot defeat Satan by not taking God's word seriously. Jeremiah 15, 16, we need to eat the word. Psalm 19, we need to see it as honey. The only time we're picking up our word is on Sunday morning. If we still have the same reading plan that we had from 1985, one psalm a day. It's going to read a psalm a day, one verse a day. Satan has already got you covered. He's like, I know which way you're coming. I'm going to come a different way. And he'll stab you. And it's hard. It's not easy. And if we forget to read our Bible or go a few days, it's not the end of the world. God is not in heaven saying, I'm mad at you. Why, why aren't you doing this? But we have to remember we're in war. And leaving your uh, soldier, American soldier, leading, leaving his gun at home in active warfare is just silly. Listen, being a Christian takes work. Living as a Christian takes work. Being a Christian takes faith. It's an active pursuit. It's an active pursuit. And he closes off this last section. Listen to what he says. Did this last week, but I want to pull out something here. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to. So fascinating to me. 
that Paul quickly goes from talking about putting on this armor to prayer. In fact, some theologians interpret this first part of this verse in verse 18 as actually being probably a part of verse 17. In the Greek, there was no punctuation. So the, the interpreters of the Bible, as an interpretation issue, as you look at Greek to see where does the punctuation come in. So it's almost as if Paul says, which is the word of God, and he doesn't pause, and it's not just a, a whole new thought, but praying at all times in the spirit. God's word and prayer goes hand to hand. As we are reading God's word, we should be praying. As we are memorizing God's word, we, are, we should be praying. Prayer is the key to allowing all of this to work. Prayer is what we find our strength in, our energy from. And Paul gives us three things as we look at prayer. He says, number one, prayer should be ongoing. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. The believer's prayer life should be constant. Second Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 tells us that we ought to pray always. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, says that we ought to be constant in prayer. There is a correlation between our spiritual victory and spiritual growth in our prayer life. And we can't make ourselves pray more. No. We've got to be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. We've got to pray about praying. This morning, as we were coming to the church, I was praying about praying. My little daughter is at home. She's been sick all week. And last night, we lost a lot of sleep, but I've been really talking to our leaders about the importance of praying and being here at 9 o'clock. And, and I wanted to sleep in, and I, I didn't feel like praying, but I said, Lord, help me to just get to the house of God with at least 15 minutes so that I can pray with the saints. And I promise you, I promise you that as the prayers were going forth, I was getting stronger. Lost two nights of sleep, I was getting stronger. But I prayed about praying and about having the right attitude to pray. You've got to be constant in prayer. Listen, I'm, I'm about to draw to a close, but I just want you to bear with me for a second. Shake your head like this and shake it off. Amen. All right, do a little, do what you got to do, all right? High five your neighbor, shout three times. God's going to bless. No, I'm just <laughs> Get this part. Get this part. Get this part. We've got we've to constantly pray. Listen to this. This is actually directly from the book called The Invisible War by Chip Ingram. And this is a quote of a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. And this is what she wrote. People who ski, I suppose, are people who happen to like skiing, who have time for skiing, who can afford to ski, and who are good at skiing. Recently, I found that I often treat prayer as though it was a sport like skiing, something you do if you feel like it, something you do in your spare time, something you do if you can afford the trouble, something to do if you're good at. But prayer isn't a sport, it's work. Prayer is no game. Prayer is the opposite of leisure. It's something to be engaged in, not indulged in. It's a job you give priority to. 
It's performing when you have energy left for nothing else. Pray when you feel like praying, somebody said. But pray when you don't feel like praying. Pray until you feel like praying, unquote. If we pray only at our leisure, that is at our own convenience, can we be true disciples? Did not Jesus say, anyone who wants to follow me must put aside his own desire and conveniences? Luke 9. That's the foundational, foundational verse of being a disciple of Jesus. If you follow after me, you must deny yourself. Paul understands that spiritual warfare is real and it's really intense. And that if the church does not take it serious, and if the church is not praying, that we are going to be picked apart. Or we'll be like 75 to 80% of churches in America. And actually, according to one statistic, they argue 95% of churches in America, which means that they are plateaued or in decline. It's a result of prayerlessness. Prayer needs to be ongoing. Prayer needs to be intense. It needs to be intense. It's not just cute little prayers. It needs to be intense. Look at what it says. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's a, that's a picture of intensity. We are alert. We're alert because we know that Satan is alert and that he is doing his job. We're alert because we know that we have a Savior who died for us and that we receive salvation by grace and we want others to experience it. But we will not pray with alertness and pray for the lost as we should and pray as if we're in warfare if we are casually going about our salvation and not putting on that helmet of salvation daily. If it's only something we think about two or three days a week. It says persevere in prayer. Don't stop. Don't stop. In the same book, Chip Ingram, who's, in my estimation, is a conservative theologian, very solid in all that I've read, told the story about a missionary in Africa who was uh, on medical missions. And one day he was driving through the city, which was two hours away from where he was staying in a rural place, And he saw two men fight. And those two men got into it and one man got injured. The other man left and ran off. So he came and he helped that man get back to his feet and he gave him medicine. He stayed for a little while. They found out where he was from and they knew it was a two-day journey. So they had someone trail the medical missionary. And the next time the missionary came back in town, the guy who he helped confessed to him. He says, after you helped me, me and my, my, my guys, we, we followed you into the jungle. And we knew that you wouldn't be able to make it home at night and that you would have to stop in the jungle. And we watched you because we figured that you were an American and you had money or you had medicine. And we had made up in our mind that we were going to kill you that night. And as we watched you sleep and as we approached, all of a sudden we saw all of your guards. And he said, what do you mean you saw all of my guards? He said, we saw men armed with guns. He said, it was 26 of them. 
And they look just like you. And the missionary said, man, what are you talking about? I, I, don't, I don't have 26 guards. He said, that night we saw 26 men. And the missionary laughed. He went back home to his home church to support all that God had done for him while he was away on missions. And he told of this story. When suddenly one of the leaders in the church stood up and he said, I can't believe it. They worked out times and he said, brother, that's the same day that I woke up in the morning and God told me that we needed to pray for you. And I got on the phone and I went down our list and we called men from our church to come down to the sanctuary and pray. And he said, everyone who was here that day, would you please stand up? 26 men stood up. 26 men stood up. And this is from a reliable source. Prayer. Prayer is what gets us over the hump. Prayer is inviting heaven to intercede in earth's affairs, in the church's affairs. Prayer was the the secret of the early church. Prayer is how they fought the enemy as they were under constant account. Go home, please, do me a favor. Please, go home and read Acts chapter 1 through 10, please. If you don't do anything else for me in the next two days. Go home and read Acts chapter 1 through 10. And I simply want you to write down every time the church prayed, what they prayed for, and how God answered. When God's people come together to pray, when the church understands that we win not by might, nor by power, but through his spirit, when we understand that our strength is found in him, not in our programs, not in just having church, when we understand that God wants to do something through us in our communities, that he wants to save the lost, that he wants to intercede, that he wants to revive this church and that he wants to revive our community. When we get on our face and on our knees and we pray, God intercedes and we can see exceedingly above and beyond anything we can ask or imagine. But when we stay apathetic, When we allow Satan to put us in a spiritual chokehold and slowly choke us out. When we allow laziness, which is a sin according to the Proverbs, and slothfulness to become our first cousins. We might as well just give up. Just give up. At Forest Baptist Church, if we are going to be a church that gathers together and has cute sermons and cute worship services with cute songs... If that's what we are going to become, and by God's grace, I don't believe that that's what you want to become. I see it. I see it in some of your eyes. But if that's who we're going to become, I promise you, I don't want to be a part of the church. And I promise you, you shouldn't want to be a part of it. You shouldn't. Jesus is so glorious. So beautiful. All that he's done for us. The way he protects us, the way he keeps us, the way he saved us from hell. Not according to our works. A man trying to earn salvation according to his works has a better chance at making a rope of sand and climbing to the room, to the moon. Makes no sense. You can't do it. 
It's not in our own works. It's not in our own strength. We're at war for us. Who's going to stand up with me and put on their whole armor? No, literally. Who is ready to take this fight to the next level? Who's ready to take off their earrings and take off their watch and take off their suit coats and take off Christian knees? And who's ready to be honest and say, this is where I am? Who's ready to fight? I'm ready. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Be blessed as we continue in worship.